I don't know. There's something so totally guileless and and non-sarcastic about her delivery. Like she sings this kind of tricky sounding melody in a way that sounds so simple and so uh, sympathetic to the meaning of the song. Like her heart is totally, she's totally on board, you know, with the with the composition. It's kind of a rare thing. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Greg Saunier is the drummer for Deerhoof, a band that originated in San Francisco in the mid-1990s and that has proven to be prolific, enduring, and relentlessly ambitious. Led by Saunier's ferocious drumming, which he does on a minimal bare-bones kit, and completed by bassist and singer Satomi Matsuzaki and guitarists John Dietrich and Ed Rodriguez, Deerhoof combines sugary, sweet voice pop with outright noise and even free jazz elements that sound like no other band before or since. Saunier, a Columbia, Maryland native, spoke to us by phone from his home in Los Angeles. The first song Greg chose as being essential to him was Burt Bacharach and Hal David's 1968 hit sung by Dion Warwick, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Warwick, I mean, I would talk about first because that was like, <laughs> you know, music that I actually did grow up on, you know, when when, uh, when I was a little kid and I, I would hear the radio, it was on whatever station my mom was playing and she was really into soft rock, so that's what I was hearing in the 70s. So <laughs> songs like Do You Know The Way To San Jose were actually current at the time. And I think, you know, <laughs> people have rarely agreed with me on this, but uh, I pretty much think of Deerhoof as being a soft rock band and uh, and uh, and our songs being very much in that vein of like, <laughs> you know, pretty easy to sing, easy to sing along with, um, but, you know, maybe a little bit kind of... Um, something a little bit going funny with the uh, with the songwriting itself and um i definitely think of Bert Bacharach that way um um the one who composed the music um to that song and that was like you know a huge hit um but she was singing his song and and uh, you know the song is like it's like if you know it, then you it's really easy to sing along with. It's super catchy, but but at the same time, it's not really a generic 
melody or a generic chord progression. I think everything about it is is actually really creative and you know the the lengths of phrases are all kind of irregular and and it keeps changing keys into unexpected, you know, zones and um I don't know the the uh or you know you can start getting into really nitpicky stuff like like the um like if you think of a phrase that she sings like do you know that one starts right on beat 1 but then you think of um second section is like rest a is a great thing. and and so there's this like variety there's this constant shifting in the way that he's written the song um that I don't know. I just think it's like, like, uh, you know, it's like a little bit, uh, what's the word? Uh, knocker. It's like makes it a little bit complicated, but at the same time, that just seems to make the song that much more fun to sing along with. And then, uh, <laughs> once Dear Hope formed, do you know, many decades later, um, and Satomi, our singer, joined the band. Um, like she came over for an audition in our kitchen in San Francisco, which is where we were practicing at the time. And it was like she must have been like completely terrified. She she had only just arrived um, to the United States from Japan. And like was like looking to make friends and just like was like, oh, maybe I should try and join this band. I mean, it was incredibly random. She'd never been in a band before. She comes over to our house. We've got this big German shepherd running around during practice. Like I'm playing drums with the with chopsticks and stuff so I don't bother the neighbors. <laughs> the bass player is playing through this tiny practice amp. And um She's just got no idea what's going on. Um, but then she starts singing, and, like, within seconds, I was like, okay, this is our singer. <laughs> I knew this was the perfect singer. And one of the reasons was that the way she sang that I think is kind of a product of um, of karaoke, um, which is kind of the only musical experience she'd ever had, um, <laughs> is that, like, you know... You're kind of singing in a way that's a bit, uh, what's the word? It's kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of blocky, kind of stiff, you know? It's like you're, you're singing the notes and rhythms in this really almost unemotional way. And of course, do you know the way to San Jose? Like the lyrics, but I think the guy's name was Hal David, the guy who wrote the lyrics, um, <laughs> You know, it's incredibly bittersweet, um, you know, the, the feeling of regret and, and uh, you know, it's a very emotional song. You just got a lot of feeling in it. But And, and actually Dionne Warwick sings it with a really nice expression. But on all these Baccarat songs, including that one, if you listen to the instruments, there's always some trumpet playing the melody or like an organ or something playing it in this really stiff kind of choppy way that has no vibrato and, and no expressive like indication at all. It's like almost like robotic, you know, uh, the performance of at least the instrumental part is this really robotic, um, thing. And to perform this like emotional song, um, you know, this kind of tearjerker in this robotic way is just like, <laughs> as soon as Satomi joined the band, I realized this was going to be a huge model for how we should, <laughs> you know, just like our whole aesthetic. I mean, it was like completely, I mean, talk about formative. I mean, I think it really helped form our aesthetic because, um, <laughs> Uh, maybe it was a little bit like the opposite of that song because there the instruments were playing in a really uh, mechanical way, but Dionne Warwick, Warwick was singing in a really um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, expressive way. And in Deerhoof, maybe it's sometimes a bit the opposite. The, uh, the Satomi, the singer, is singing things in a really mechanical way 
seeming to lack affect of any kind. But then the instruments are playing in this really expressive kind of exaggerated way. But still, it was like as a songwriting model, it was like, this is the kind of song to write, you know, something that could be performed, you know, on like a Casio or, or, or something that just was like the most inexpressive instrument you can imagine. And that somehow like the song has to be good enough that the emotion comes across, even if the performance, even if the performers aren't like milking it or whatever. So, um, yeah, I love that song. <laughs> I know this, I know your podcast isn't about songs I like, but I also happen to like it. And it was hugely formative for our band and continues to be. And whenever I get stuck when I'm trying to write a song, I think about like that, <laughs> like trumpet sound, you know, in uh, Do You Know the Way to San Jose and, and like trying to write a melody that could be played by that same that same sound, that same instrument or whatever. And then all my problems get solved. Yeah, I was really happy to 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 hear you bring that song up and Dion Warren <laughs> cool. for background. Because I think, you know, in the in the last several years, if only because mm. of stuff like Austin Powers, uh yeah. David <laughs> have gotten like, you know, they've gotten their share of the credit. But yeah, totally. When I was a kid, I always loved Dion Warwick's um voice and I loved those songs when I was a kid. And a lot of it is her. I mean, they get a lot of credit, and they should because, you know, as you point out, they're they they sound simple, but they're not simple at all. So she does right, a exactly. great job. She does such yeah. a great job of of singing them with emotion, but she's like really super precise at the same time. So I can yeah, exactly. She's she's kind of got the the best of uh, of both, and it's it's like I don't know. There's something so totally guileless and and non-sarcastic about her delivery like she sings this kind of tricky sounding melody in a way that sounds so simple and so uh sympathetic to the meaning of the song like her heart is totally she's totally on board you know with the with the composition it's kind of a rare thing um that that uh she makes I don't know. She makes a kind of tricky sounding um, composition seem very approachable and accessible. And she she has this incredibly friendly sounding voice. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I immediately grabbed onto it when I was a kid. You know, I just loved it. And my mom had the record. You know, it was like a Dionne Warwick's Golden Hits. It's, just, uh, it's still an incredible record cover. It's completely gold. You know, you almost never see a metallic finish on an LP cover. But this thing is completely gold, um, just, to, you know, front and back um, with this with this it's just um black on gold uh uh image um a kind of uh psychedelic looking drawing of of dion in like this in this flowing gown or whatever that's like drawn onto this gold background we actually deerhoof has a song called black on gold actually maybe it was gold on black i can't remember <laughs> something like that from the early days and uh i'll leave it up to the uh, listeners to uh, guess whether or not that's about uh, a uh, dion moore with greatest hits collection <laughs> The second song chosen by Sonia as being formative to him was 90s hip-hop duo Jungle Brothers' Book of Rhyme Pages. Um, hip hop that 
like for some reason, <laughs> some strange coincidence happened. This was just before Deerhoof formed at all. <laughs> I heard a cassette of several songs um, of what would eventually be released. But the thing is, this album was incredibly delayed by its record label. It's it's hard to imagine something like this happening now, but this was this different climate, you know, in the early 90s of <laughs> everything was the artist versus the label in terms of creative control. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I forget what label they were on, but but um you know the jerks at the label were like no no the jungle brothers this record is too weird we're not going to release it and the thing finally came out like i think like two years later or something i mean it was so ridiculously delayed um <laughs> by the time it came out it's sort of like the moment it had passed and then the record kind of flopped and it i always felt that that was a huge tragedy for some reason <laughs> like my roommate <laughs> in 91 or 92 was friends with a guy who was friends with the person who was producing this record. <laughs> and he happened to make a cassette of some mixes of some of these songs. And we would listen to this thing over and over and over and we just couldn't believe it. It was, uh, you know, there was a song on there called 40 Below Trooper. Um, really funny song and then this song Book of Rhyme Pages but I just I cannot tell you how many times I've listened to this thing and how intensely formative it was for I don't know just like not just like what Deerhoof ended up becoming but but just like my idea of the purpose of music because um, I don't know just on so many levels it was like <laughs> First of all, it's completely filled with completely insane sounds. It's really hard to find this song, actually. I looked for it on iTunes like about a year ago because I was like, whoa, whatever happened to that song? And it's literally not there. 40 Below Trooper doesn't even exist at the iTunes store. I think I ended up finding the song on YouTube, <laughs> and that was the only place that I could locate it. Um, so, you know, it's not exactly the most famous song, but it should be. This thing is filled with so many funny sounds. Uh, <laughs> the, the, it, what it sounds like is going on on this thing is just <laughs> like it was kind of an era of, of massive amounts of sampling. Um, <laughs> and I think maybe Public Enemy had a lot to do with sort of setting the tone of just piling huge amounts of samples on top of each other and creating this incredibly dense track <laughs> um, where you kind of really had to like, you kind of had to flex your ear muscles to try and figure out what in the world you were hearing. There was like one teeny little snippet of this song and a little um, blip of that song and a fragment of another song all mixed together in a totally unexpected way where things were all in different keys and, and uh, you know, put onto different beats of the measure or whatever um, so that everything that might have been familiar if you heard it by itself, when it was combined with this, with this stack of sounds, suddenly became refreshed and totally new and that the meaning of the sounds was totally changed. Well, this was a lot like that. <laughs> really dense, tons of samples, um, lots of instruments going on. And you could, I just sort of imagine Jungle Brothers in the studio just like, <laughs> I don't know, just very freewheeling, um, just kind of improvising um, on the spot and finding crazy sounds um, either off of record or just with a microphone or like hitting something or like making, you know, finding some squeak or some buzz or something <laughs> that just happened to be and just say, here, sample this, sample this. And, and then, and then building the track like so painstakingly with, with these millions of layers of stuff um, until the result is so uh, unfamiliar sound. It just doesn't sound like anything, you know, uh, the drums don't sound like drums and, and the bass line doesn't sound like a bass and, and, uh, <laughs> actually on that song, um, book of rhyme pages, the, the bass line is <laughs> being played 
sounds like by a bass clarinet, um, which is one of my favorite instruments of the orchestra. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, ever since then, you know, I've, I've been wanting to have, uh, Deerhoof's bass lines be doubled <laughs> by a bass clarinet player. You know, the, the closest we've come, um, is that, um, Satomi recently got a, uh, a pedal that she plugs her bass through, um, that's like a, a Mellotron, uh, Mellotron, uh, pedal. Mellotron was that sort of, um, instrument made famous by the Beatles, um, that you hear on like, you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or something, um, where it's, it's, it's kind of like a 60s sampler, like it's got, samples it's got recordings on on tape loops of various instruments and um <laughs> this mellotron pedal kind of imitates that idea and so you play the bass through it and you can have the sound of some other instrument a sample of some other instrument playing those same notes at the same time and there's a clarinet setting on that so we've been using that lately <laughs> as an homage to uh to uh book of rhyme pages and the other thing was that, that when, like a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for classical instruments uh, for a chamber group um, uh, that where the the bass lines are all played by uh, bass clarinet, and and uh, I've just been like years wanting to to hear that sound, um, you know, to hear the. The Deerhoof songs uh, being done that way on bass clarinet is the bass instrument, and um, and yeah, it's it's really just all came from Book of Rhyme Pages. But but the I think the biggest thing about Book of Rhyme Pages that was that was like formative <laughs> is I think just the kind of like the sense of humor of it. I mean, it's an incredibly funny song. Um, <laughs> it's this kind of rapping where where like uh there's almost no syncopation you know uh the the rhythms are incredibly also maybe a little like the Dion Warwick thing it's like the the rhythms are very stiff and they're very simple and not um uh, not too sophisticated like it's really easy to rap along with this song and which of course comes across in an ironic way it's like this this kind of um oversimplified rhythm in the voice that that makes you smile or makes you giggle when you hear it um and the the words are so funny but at the same time it's like <laughs> it's it's the, i mean as i understand the song just from the lyrics it seems to be about uh <laughs> kind of comparing the news as it's portrayed in the media you know, of the time that was the early nineties, but nothing has changed. Um, the way the, the, the way, uh, news is portrayed or, or what world events are selected, um, to qualify as the news versus, you know, like members of the population who are not part of a cor corporate media structure, but just who are regular people. Um, and in their case, they're talking about the the uh, the history of hip hop itself. They're talking about the voices who created that genre and who propagated uh, as as almost forming their own kind of news or their own kind of literature or their own history, um, uh, totally from scratch and without the validation of that. You know mass corporate structure and of course the irony is that <laughs> that's exactly what happened with the record you know the 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 stupid execs at the at their record label thought the record was too weird and delayed its release for so long and it, and it just was sort of like this self-fulfilling <laughs> not so self-fulfilling but it was like more like they saw into the crystal ball <laughs> even in their own lyrics they saw the the music's uh uh 
rejection by some kind of like corporate head, you know, and uh, just but when you hear the song itself, it's like <laughs> it's like there's that underlying feeling of revolution in it. But on the surface, the song is so sounds so lighthearted and good natured and kind of um, and very humorous and and uh, you know I feel like uh, more recently like that band Nerd um, you know kind of picks up from that same tone like you know the the lyrics are really quite serious if you look at them um, and they're also incredibly smart but the the tone that comes across is appears on the surface to be lighthearted and kind of jokey and um that that sort of combination of the lightness and the and the and uh, like seeming totally unpretentious on the surface but below the surface it's an attempt to completely rewrite history and it's an attempt to rewrite the rules of a musical genre or any musical genre, who cares about the genre? It's just that, and it was so musically revolutionary, you know. Um, that yeah, that that was that was something that that uh, that was huge for us too, and that we've always, you know, taken as a big model. At least for me, yeah, I love that song. Well, I love that record too. And you've I, heard it? Yes. Oh, really? Okay, cool. I've never found anybody who knows it. I thought it was like. It just, I thought it just like died, you know, when it came out. Well, there, there were a few of us, I guess. But right, I, okay. <laughs> I, have to say, Sweet. I have to say that one of the things that I've always mm. thought about that record is, while it's a great record, I understand kind of what happened to it. Because, right. you know, it's sort of front-loaded with all those great, fun, you know, right. golden-age hip-hop jams. And then yeah. as it goes on, the record just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. <laughs> And yeah. by the end, it's like falling apart almost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's sad what happened to it, but I, I'm not completely surprised. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's like the, the 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 record is the story of its own, you know, of its own suicide or something. You know, I mean, it's just it's incredible to think of it that way. You know, it's like two years before the fact they were writing lyrics about what about what was going to happen in two years when the record label finally, you know, um, got around to trying to put this thing out. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I guess the relationship between bands and record labels, it has changed now, of course, but, you know, the, the record labels are still at times uh, kind of in the business of, preventing music from being released <laughs> that happens a lot um where it's like you know a label will will try to acquire an artist um and then the artist is very excited that they have the opportunity to release some music but but then the label will choose for whatever uh, reasons, their own reasons of financial or calendar reasons or optimizing uh, uh, release dates and stuff like that, will choose to delay <laughs> the release of the record for so long. And in a lot of cases, the artist had been shopping it completely finished for months before this record label even, you know, heard it and decided to take it. So by the time the record comes out, sometimes it will be uh, delayed another year or two. And uh, the music will be so old by that time that it's just like <laughs> when you 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 feel like when uh, when Beyonce has the chance because she's so enormously successful to just unannounced you know uh, release a record uh, with no <laughs> you know lead up campaign no PR um, except day of and um, and no like need to shop the music around different labels and wait for the label to to um to no longer delay its release um you just feel so envious of those artists that that can be like okay i finished this five minutes ago send you know press send and that's it and then everybody in the universe hears it it's like wow you know that would really be something but for most of us there's a there's a, a huge gap between the creation of the music and it's actually being heard by any audience.
Um, I'm curious. Yeah. Do, did something like hip hop make much of an impact on the way you play drums? Oh yeah. I mean the. Uh, I mean it still does. <laughs> and not just hip hop. <coughs> sorry, not just hip hop, because obviously a great deal of hip hop. <laughs> Less so now, but particularly in that time period of the early '90s um, and late '80s, the 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 kind of drums you would hear on a hip hop record were were almost always sampled um, from funk records, and so so you know I mean that that style of of drum playing was is uh, something yeah I mean uh, that I'm just always you know struggling to uh to uh match up to let's say and uh i remember you know one of our peers as a band is the roots and i, I remember me and satomi going to see the roots play in san francisco in the really early days of the band like within maybe six months of her joining the band i think it was 1995 and the roots were already getting pretty big. I mean, they they're a little older than Deerhoof, but um and they certainly were <laughs> you know, reached a, a level of success um, um within the first year of Deerhoof, the roots were already more successful than Deerhoof has ever become. <laughs> but <laughs> I just remember <laughs> seeing the roots live and Questlove, their drummer, you know, who I'm, I'm so thrilled to now call a friend, um, and that we've played a lot of shows together. Um, but at the time, just so blown away, you know, because <laughs> I mean, for a drummer to to watch Questlove not only be a cool drummer, but um, also you can kind of tell that he's sort of leading the band, you know. And there aren't too many bands where the drummer is the leader, um, um, except really annoying ones like maybe Buddy Rich or like the Eagles or something <laughs> that you would never want to be like in a million years. Um, and then, and then here's <laughs> this band <laughs> that that's giving off nothing but really good vibes um, from the stage, but it seems that all of the. <laughs> the brain no not all of the brain but but something about the direction of the music seems to be very much coming from the drummer um or at least a combination of quest love and black thought the the rapper um and and you know the show ended with this like 45 minute song you know this medley of there was there was kind of uh, it's kind of um related a bit to that song book of rhyme pages because it was it was about the history of hip hop music, and it, it was just snippets of covers from decades of music. I mean, you couldn't believe this band, and I, just the audacity and the ambition to attempt something like this on stage. <laughs> you know, it seriously was about 45 minutes. I mean, to see a band play a five-minute song, you know, on any stage, it's like pretty breathtaking. But then you'd look at Questlove playing, and his drum set was tiny. <laughs> He's joked to me um, in the years since then about how his, his drum set's gotten big again, and um, and he feels like he sold out when he sees my drum set because mine's like his was in 1995. It was totally stripped down. It was nothing, you know. It was a snare and a hi hat. Um, he may have occasionally hit a one tom um, or occasionally smashed one cymbal but basically everything came down to just kick snare hi-hat and that all of this thinking of that medley like all of the music of decades of, of pop music and and r&b and you know uh, spanning all kinds of genres in the middle of that medley they did could all be perfectly recreated um by just his sheer human power um, and and uh, ability to recreate these beats um, with just the most minimal um, setup, um, and he didn't need a bunch of sound effects, you know, in order to <laughs> allude to these different moments of musical history. He could do it all just with his touch and with his sense of rhythm, 
And uh, yes, I was completely, I mean, that was really early days of Deerhoof. I was completely blown away. So was Satomi. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was a, that was a huge moment for the beginning of Deerhoof, absolutely. final song chosen by Sonia as being essential to him was Little Walter's It's Too Late, Brother. And now I'm stuck. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to choose a. <coughs> I'm going to not talk about Igor Stravinsky Symphony of Psalms, uh, Movement Three, but instead <laughs> going to talk about something <laughs> uh, <laughs> equally religious. It's called Little Walter. Uh, it's too late, brother. You know the other two songs I'm I'm talking about, like when I was. When I was a child, you know, I heard of Dionne Warwick and maybe in the very, just as Deerhoof was just about to start, like a couple of years before Deerhoof, um, I heard the Jungle Brothers song. And the Little Walter, I had never heard Little Walter at all until uh, it popped up in this, uh, what was it? It was like a Netflix documentary about Keith Richards. Um, and he was going on and on about Little Walter. And uh, I was like, well, I should just see what some of this music actually sounds like. You know, you can hear snippets of it in that documentary. I'm a Keith Richards fanatic, but um, I was like, let me, you know, this music and, and found a bunch of songs. Um, and, and I guess... You know, I kind of bought them and filed them away and, and sort of just had them sitting in iTunes, but hadn't really listened through to them yet until <laughs> late last year. There was a <laughs> just like I, I decided to uh, move cities <laughs> from New York, where I'd been living for seven years, uh, to Baltimore. Um, <laughs> and the move was pretty sudden. And it was for romance. And, uh, you know, it felt like a lot of, uh, you know, sort of personal upheaval and, and taking a big chance, you know, for love, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, it was so, I don't know how to explain it. It was like <laughs> so tumultuous. I mean, it was, of course, very happy, but it was, it also felt like one of those, I don't know, one of those crossroads in, in one's life where one feels like one has to make a big decision or make a whole bunch of big decisions all at once. Um, and uh, as you, uh, as you might know, because we had a mix up about um, what time zone I was in, and I thought we were having this conversation three hours from now because you're on the East Coast. I've since moved from Baltimore with this same person to Los Angeles, which is where I am now. And just in the span of just a few months, like I've completely moved um, everything twice uh, to two different cities, <clears throat> started a new relationship. Um, totally from almost from like zero to like moved in really fast. And, and, you know, it was a lot of, uh, 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 strong emotions all the time. Um, and a lot of pressure 
um, for everything to work, you know, like you're taking a, a huge chance in your life. Um, but if it doesn't work, you're kind of screwed because <laughs> you've packed up your entire life and, and put it in a U-Haul and moved it to, to, um, this person's apartment. And then you've done it again with the person moved to a totally new city where you've never lived in your life. Um, and the the stakes feel really high, so the emotions are running really strong. And when this started happening late last year, I suddenly found that, like a couple songs by Little Walter, just magically seems to like hit the nail on the head um, for the way I was feeling. And actually not just express the way I was feeling. It wasn't that. It was more like an antidote. It was like medicine, musical medicine. And I, I really love thinking of music that way, that it that it has use in your life. Um, it's Music isn't only about getting um, a high rating on, on a... Uh, on a music review website. It's, it's something that's meant to be used, um, by a person <laughs> to help them in their, in their daily life. And I was feeling like I needed a lot of help. I needed, uh, you know, to be kind of strengthened and to, to find some, <laughs> you know, part of myself that wasn't being <laughs> emotionally tossed you know, from one extreme to the next, like it often feels when you're in a new relationship and you're in love and you're losing your mind, you know? <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> the, <clears throat> the, the kind of like attitude or ethos for me that's like coming across in these little Walter songs and, and in a lot of that early electric blues, um, Little Walter, I think, was was Muddy Waters' harmonica player, and so that you know that that was the more famous uh, of the two. But but uh, Little Walter also made records on his own, and uh, but you know the same the same ethos comes across in the Muddy Waters records that are more well known, which is this you know an attitude towards life's troubles, you know. Um, <laughs> And and it's often a cliche that people talk about the blues as a genre as sad music or it's it's about sadness. But you know, it's like you listen to Muddy Waters, you listen to Little Walter, these songs are incredibly funny. Um and uh they actually are not sad at all. And this song It's Too Late Brother, you know, if if you saw the lyrics on paper you would think, geez, you know, what a what a uh what a sad song, but, but you hear it's like this up-tempo, you know, really danceable and, and you realize what's going on. At least for me, this is the way how I took it, you know, uh, the, the, the suffering or the, the, you know, the life's uh, foibles and tribulations is sort of the, the premise um, that you're starting from in the song. But then the singer is taking an attitude towards those tribulations and foibles, um, a philosophical attitude that that is kind of, you know, giving a name to the to life's troubles um, and calling it things and kind of making light of it in a way as a way to cope. You know, so it's like a coping mechanism for trouble and uh, um, partly by using humor. And also by using a really, I mean, the, the sound of, of, of Little Walter's records and definitely on this song, It's Too Late, Brother, is so ragged. Uh, you know, you can tell it's recorded with one microphone or maybe two microphones, you know, maybe one for the vocals or something, all live. <laughs> you know, the guitar just sounds like it's played through a tiny amp turned all the way up. It's just... Uh, 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 the, the harmonica, the way he plays it is so often bent and distorted, you know, his sound is distorted also through an amp that's, that's quite distorted and, and he's bending notes a lot in a way that, that make them sound, it's actually very precise, but, but you could never play it on a piano because it, he's playing notes that are in between the notes of the piano. Um, and everything about it just sounds like it's coming from this sort of broken place, but 
<laughs> is nevertheless full of energy and full of so much life force and, and like dancing and moving and, and hilarious and performed with so much, I mean, such a commanding, you know, charismatic, um, you know, undeniable uh, human presence, you know, when you when you hear the performance of this song, that you're just like totally, <laughs> you know, convinced and swept up in the in the power of this thing. Um, so it's like, it's kind of like humble and, and sort of screwed up sounding on the one hand, and not just sounding, but the lyrics too, you know. It, the lyrics are about... Uh, you know, okay, you you think you were such a hot shot and you've had all this fun in your life, but it's too late. You know, you you uh, uh, it's too late for you now. You it, it, your turn is over, and other people are going to have fun now. And why don't you just be quiet? You know, something like that. And um, you know, it's kind of an insult song, um, but it's one that you can easily turn um, against yourself. Um, as a way to not take yourself too seriously um, and not take your problems too seriously because they're nothing, you know. Uh, I like <laughs> the, the the person that I fell in love with um, was really into yoga and I had never tried it in my life. And so I started doing some stretches with her and stuff and I was really getting into doing stretches. I found that like the breathing and the stretching stuff made me feel better and made me feel a little more like, <laughs> under control while I was having all my, you know, um, life freakouts and emotional uh, roller coaster stuff. Um, but I also found that, like, you know, that whole yoga thing made me start thinking about meditation. And I was thinking about, you know, how people sometimes have mantras or they have, uh, you know, a certain, you know, deep breathing thing or, or like something they'll tell themselves or affirmations or, or things, you know, that they will try to keep in their mind throughout the day and whenever they need to calm down or chill out or whatever, they'll, they'll sort of reach for this thing and, and it will, you know, through lots of practice will help um, calm them down. Well, I realized why couldn't you do that with like the, the first two bars of, uh, <laughs> of this little Walter song and like literally for months, like anytime I was feeling like stressed out or like I wasn't, um, handling my emotions very well. Um, I would just like think to the intro of this song, It's Too Late Brother, and, and it would like really like make me feel so much better. And like sometimes I'd have to write emails, <laughs> you know, band emails or whatever, you know, just business junk admin, whatever. And, uh, you know, it's like I didn't feel like in the right place to, to send a cheerful email. So I would think about this song and it would help me think of something funny to, to write in the email. And I just felt like, you know, for a few months in there, this thing just like totally saved my life. And uh, so this, this song was absolutely enormous uh, for me. Um, that one and another one called uh, Mellow Down Easy were, were ones that I was just listening to. It's not playing them out loud through speakers. I was playing them in my mind um, on a kind of constant loop and found that I was able to uh, hang on to some kind of sanity um, um, with, with the uh, with the aid of little Walter. And so I feel like eternally grateful to little Walter. The existence of that uh, concept and that, that attitude towards life is so... Um, I just, as much as like uh, American popular music is dominated by African Americans, I still feel that it's underappreciated the the magnitude and the scope of the accomplishment of turning turning oppression and and uh, uh, centuries of oppression um, into into uh, medicine. You know that then is made available to everyone and anyone who maybe they don't feel oppressed, but they feel that they're having some kind of something go wrong in their life. Um, you know, this, this music is there, uh, uh, and has sympathy and it has offered itself for everyone's use. And, and, uh, the, the magnitude of the, the generosity of that offering from, from a uh, an oppressed and or marginalized and or underappreciated 
um, and, you know, I mean, largely enslaved um, uh, segment of our culture um, just seems to me to be like one of the greatest gifts that you could point to in human history from one group um, of people to the rest of the human race. And uh, I, I, I do feel, I mean, whatever, everybody has their favorite songs or whatever, but like, to me, that this, this, this uh, little Walter expresses a lot of that for me. And so I wanted to, to express in this podcast, my appreciation for it, because, um, you know, the, some kind of gratitude really for all, all three of the songs, uh, for music in general, you know, uh, that, that's why I kind of like the theme of your podcast because it was like a chance to to thank artists and to thank songs for not just not just making a a song that gets a ten out of ten on Pitchfork, but but for making a song that like helps you build your own character, helps you you know realize yourself as a person or whatever. Um, you know, it's quite uh, huge, and it is funny how how. You know, music always seems like a decoration or an extra in life um, when we should be worried about um, uh, making money instead. But the fact is, is that it just seems like every culture since the beginning of time has always needed music and always made music. And uh, it actually does have a, does seem to have some huge value um, for people down through the ages all across the globe. and. And uh, so I think it's fun to be able to talk about how, how, uh, yeah, songs might have helped create who you are as a human being. Um, so this this has been fun to chat. Brother, brother, ain't no need of going no further, man. You had diamonds and Cadillac cars, touring the world and setting up bars. Ain't no need of Going no further now Essential Tremors is hosted and distributed by AudioStack and WYPR Baltimore. Look for and subscribe to our podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral, including Life in the Balance, a monthly program that asks... What are the systemic issues in Baltimore that keep marginalized people from reaching their full potential? And what are the solutions to those problems? Also new to WYPR is The Noir and Bazaar, which explores the dark and strange stories we tell ourselves about human existence, occult history, ghosts, haunted houses, and secret crimes, with a special emphasis on stories that draw on the rich history and culture of Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors or to connect with us, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.